Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. This is Nick Cheeseman, co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. The novel coronavirus pandemic of 2020 has pushed us all into our homes. Consequently, because our and our interviewees' home internet connections are generally not as good as those at our workplaces where we usually do our interviews, you may find that sometimes the sound quality in what follows is not quite as good as usual. We're sorry for that and hope it won't interfere greatly with your enjoyment of the interview. Thanks for your understanding while we and our interviewees do our best throughout this trying time to keep on bringing you conversations about new books on Southeast Asia. Do get in touch if you have any comments or suggestions about how we're doing. Stay well, stay safe, and keep listening. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the new books in Southeast Asian Studies website. and welcome to New New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria from Nanyang Technological University and your host for today. It is a pleasure to have with me Kevin Falk, the author of Indonesia's Islamic Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Dr. Falk is the Associate Director at the Carolina Centre in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Research Associate at Brasnes College, Oxford University. We're doing this interview while sheltering in place in our respective parts of the world, and I think I speak for both of us in wishing all our listeners are keeping safe and well. Kevin, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for doing this interview. Well, thanks so much for having me, Faiza. I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. It's always great to chat with another historian about this book, but I'm especially excited that we're recording this 75 years to the month after some of the big events in this book and in the Indonesian Revolution. Definitely. And I think the fact that it is uh, such a seminal anniversary makes this book even more timely. So a quick overview about Kevin's book before we move on to the discussion. Indonesia's Islamic Revolution analyzes the Indonesian Revolution from 1945 to 1949 through the lens of fighters and politicians who centralized the role of Islam in the new independent state that they were hoping to build. While much of the present historiography on the Indonesian Revolution has focused on secular nationalists such as Sukarno and Hatta as the primary historical actors in this event, Dr. Falk's book refocuses attention on how the revolutionary movement also drew its energy from a group he terms as pious Muslims. Islam was part of the motivation to fight against the return of the Dutch after the Second World War, and was also a belief system that these revolutionaries wished to integrate with the new system. Consequently, the issues that are raised in this book have um, resonance with the ways in which Islam-based reforms and the role of Islam in the state have contemporary um, salience today. So let's start 
with, I think, the deceptively simple title in your book, Kevin, Indonesia's Islamic Revolution. And it's a term that takes on, I think, several years as I read the book. So tell us what exactly is Indonesia's Islamic Revolution? Well, thank you for catching that. I hope that this title takes at least two different meanings. Um, so first, the revolution of independence, which was fought from 1945 to 1949, had an Islamic side. There were people who interpreted it Islamically. And so in that sense, the revolution was Islamic. But on the flip side, the war between 1945 and 1949 also had revolutionary consequences for the practice and understanding of Islam in Indonesia. So in that sense, Islam underwent a revolution. I think trying to capture both sides of this, both how Islam impacted the physical fight, the, the military fight, and how that fight impacted Islam uh, is crucial to understand the place of religion in 1940s Indonesia. Right. And how do you come to 1940s Indonesia as a topic of interest? Well, when I started doing fieldwork in Indonesia around 2005, um, there were still a number of veterans of the Indonesian revolution um, who were talking about their experiences, who were excited to be interviewed. This was especially true when I was in West Sumatra, where you see a lot of the anecdotes from the book pulled. But a lot of these I was interviewing were telling me about their religious experiences in the revolution, right? Um, being told that they wouldn't be allowed to pray again if the Dutch won, being told that this was really, you know, to, to stand up as good Muslims and show the world what Muslims were like. I felt like those stories hadn't been reflected in the historiography around this pit of pivotal event. You know, the Indonesian revolution has been central, certainly in Indonesian historiography. Uh, if you're in Indonesia, um, they talk about this every year and they perennially trot out stories of the revolution, um, especially in August when they celebrate their Independence Day. It's also been crucial for the historiography of Indonesia in English. The founder of Southeast Asian Studies in the United States in many ways was George Kayan, who for years led the program at Cornell. And he cut his teeth as an Indonesianist by being in the revolutionary capital of Indonesia during the revolution. He wrote his doctoral dissertation, which became his first book about that revolution. It was sort of the book at the time. And that, as you mentioned earlier, provides a nice, clean, secular nationalist interpretation but I think there's a lot of religious aspects to this fight that just hadn't really been documented and certainly had not been documented in English. One of the reasons why I personally was interested in doing that is because I come from a very religious family in the United States. So given my personal background, I'm intimately familiar with how pious communities can have a different lens on major historical events, but also how those major historical events can have unforeseen consequences for religious communities. I must say I really enjoyed the stories that opened um, each chapter of your book, which uses the experiences of relatively obscure combatants during the revolution to orientate themes in each chapter. And I love that you link that um, experience of religiousity to, uh, I mean, across different religious um, experiences. Could you share your methods instead of um, collecting and curating these stories? And how do you choose what to foreground? Are there any interesting ones that you ultimately decided to leave out? That is very tricky. And... One of the things that I have experienced, especially as I talk about this book with audiences in the UK and in the US, is a lot of skepticism. You know, can you really collect oral histories in the 21st century that will help to inform how you understand the 1940s? So approach to understanding the grassroots and certainly elite politics of 1940s Indonesia is not solely based on oral histories at all. Um, I certainly collected a lot of oral histories and, you know, I've, I've talked to about 200 individuals for oral histories in Indonesia, not all of them living or fighting during the revolution. Some of them children of those who fought in the revolution or students of those who fought in the revolution. 
Um, but a fair number of them, uh, upside of 40, were people who experienced the revolution as living, breathing individuals, and many of them as fighters. Um, some of the women were not permitted to be fighters. But I think that their understanding of what was going on is really crucial for us to think about how Indonesians later interpreted the revolutionary experience and how they understood what Indonesia should be after that revolution, as a consequence of that revolution. Now, I pair this with contemporary publications, certainly um, uh, newspaper publications, but also polemic tracts and uh, publications of fatwas and things. And I also did an awful lot of digging in the Indonesian National Archives, in the archival collections of major Islamic organizations, um, and some digging actually in private archives. Um, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into this book is a letter that um, was from a private archive from a really remote corner of central Sulawesi. Um, you may remember that in Indonesia, they had royal dynasties that sort of continued to have some authority under law until the 1950s. Um, the ones that continue today are the ones that we think of in Jogja, which is a special administrative region. But actually a wide range of, in, of local traditional kings had special powers called Swapraja in Indonesia when it was first set up. And one of these Swapraja in central Sulawesi was acting in a way that the locals found to be un-Islamic. And when they wrote to the, the provincial government about this, they said, well, you can't let them keep doing this because we fought this revolution. And clearly from the revolution, we should have a state that is in keeping with Islam because look at what we did during the revolution. And so at that sort of grassroots level, you know, on the ground, across Indonesia, in all corners, you had people who understood what they had done during the revolution Islamically. And that's what I'm trying to get at in all these different ways, right? Collecting the oral histories, gathering the archival data, looking for published sources from the Muslim community. Now, trying to judge what goes in, it's always tricky. Um, one of the big things for me was looking at patterns that I found across different provinces, right? Because this hasn't been captured in the historiography, when you get that kind of narrative that reemerges about joining Islamic militias or about hearing local fatwas from interviews in Aceh and Kalimantan and Java and Lombok, then you get an idea that this was actually something that was going on for an awful lot of Muslims in an awful lot of places. And it's something that we should try to understand about the Muslim experience of the Indonesian revolution. I think the, the diversity of Indonesia that you brought out is definitely an important aspect of the revolution. But it's interesting that in the end, when you think about these fighters or the, the combatants and the people involved in the revolution, you group them together as pious Muslims. And in some ways, I think the categorization needs interrogation. So could you tell us how you define this group? And since there's such diversity, right? How do you choose and why do you choose to centralize piety as as a kind of glue to, to kind of cohere this, this group. So pious Muslims is a little bit awkward in English. I, I freely admit that. But mm -hmm. in India, this category is pretty well articulated. And it's usually articulated with the uh, Indonesian or Javanese word santri. And uh, santri, S-A-N-T-R-I, has a narrow meaning. I mean, it, it you know, originally meant students at Islamic boarding schools. Um, but in the 20th century, and especially since Clifford Gertz used this in his classic 1960 book, The Religion of Java, it's taken a broader meaning, and it's certainly how it's used in Indonesian society today, to talk about all of the people who sort of orient their lives around Islam. So in this book, I use a definition actually from the venerated former head of Muhammadiyah, Indonesia's second largest Islamic organization. Ahmed Shafi'i Marif is this man's name. And he wrote about pious Muslims as, quote, those who take Islam as the way of life. And I found that more useful, right? This focus on piety, um, because it colored so much about the way that Indonesian individuals participated in the revolution, right? Pious Muslims would join different militias. They would follow different local leaders. 
They would organize their community kitchens and their Red Cross groups separately from others, um, even if they did recognize those others, right? Be they secular nationalists or Christians or whatever it was. And piety, especially during the era of the revolution, is more useful to me as a category than other categorizations like orthodoxy. Um, you know, pious individuals may not have had the same idea of what orthodoxy was. I'm um, certainly not the same as us today, maybe not the same as their forefathers before them, but even not the same across the country at, this, at that moment, right? Uh, politicians at the highest level and grassroots fighter had very different approaches to whether Islamic magical practices were appropriately orthodox, but both of them were deeply pious and wanted to understand life through the lens of Islam. And that's why I think piety is a useful category of historical analysis for this project. And I think from that perspective, the category does sort of disrupt some of the um, existing binaries about heterodoxy and orthodoxy, as you pointed out. How do you see these diverse practices as kind of a completion of pietistic expression um, in the revolution, the practice of, going, as you mentioned, Islamic magic of prayers and so on, coming together as a, as a form of expression of Islam. And is this a way in which they, your interlocutors themselves would view these practices? So to answer the last question first, yes, absolutely. My interlocutors who did engage in Islamic magic absolutely understood it as Islamic. And I can understand why that's their uh, perspective, right? They're using verse of the Quran, they're using the confession of faith, they're using all of the symbols and elements of Islam that they know from normal practice. Um, they're using it in a special time of in, intense conflict, right, of military conflict. And so it would make sense that they would understand use of Quranic verses and Islamic symbols and Arabic script as being Islamic. But the ways that they use them, right, special prayers to create trances that would allow them to go into battle, to create amulets. Uh, often these amulets were to make them impervious to bullets. Uh, sometimes these amulets were to make them invisible or to give them superhuman strength. Those are not what we understand today as Islamic orthodoxy. And in fact, that's not what a lot of the highest educated people in the Indonesian government understood as Islamic orthodoxy. A lot of the Islamic politicians at the center um, sort of were skeptical or maybe even laughed at some of the Islamic magical practices happening. But I want to emphasize that a lot of those magical Islamic practices were emanating from exactly the people that we think of as being authoritatively Islamic today. So these are kiais or ulama, right? Religious scholars, religious teachers who are in rural Islamic schools, sometimes even peri-urban Islamic schools, who are the ones issuing amulets, who are the ones, you know, saying prayers over Islamic militias before they went into battle in order to give them superhuman strength. Um, so I, I think it's unusual. It's sort of uh, discombobulating for us sometimes today to think about this as orthodox Islam. But at that time, the people who are the guardians of orthodoxy were certainly practicing this. I've also noticed this as I present this work in Indonesia. You know, I spent much of 2019 in Indonesia. And the older Indonesian audience members that would hear my talks would say, oh, yeah, this sounds exactly what I heard from my uncle or my neighbor or my teacher, that they became invisible to the Dutch. The Dutch couldn't attack them because they couldn't see them because they had done their prayers correctly. Whereas younger Indonesians listening to my talk would really find this uh, unusual. Um, they were more surprised that this kind of practice that they today see as syncretic or, or heterodox was such a crucial part of Islamic life during the revolution. Um, let's sort of move on to the sort of more orthodox 
actors uh, with religious authority, which is the ulama or the Islamic uh, religious teachers. I think one of your most notable findings in the book for me was the sheer number of fatwas or religious edicts that called for jihad against the Dutch. And it was amazing, I think, to see this sort of documentary evidence of how this was construed as a, as a, as a mode of jihad or holy war. But because they were so numerous, and because they come from all over Indonesia, it is also difficult to see anyone, fatwa, or anyone leader as authoritative. Could you tell us more about the ulama and the structure of religious authority that you've sort of alluded to in the previous answer um, during this period? Yeah, that is a really tough one. You know, how do we get at religious authority from 75 years ago um, or when I was doing this research from 60 years ago? And I think we have to recognize that the nature of communication and the nature of religious life in Indonesia in the 1940s was very different from what we see today. Communication was cut between islands. Communication was sometimes difficult even between villages, both during the Japanese occupation period, but also during the revolution as they fought off the Dutch reinvasion of the country. And for that reason, Local authorities were often seen as the most authoritative, right? The, the guy who had taught you at your Islamic school, the religious leader who had married you to your wife or to your husband, um, the one who had, you know, uh, engaged in Thursday night prayer meetings or Thursday night Quranic study for your uncle. Those were the ones that you trusted because they were the ones that you could actually interact with. And you knew that what was coming from them was in fact coming from them, wasn't sort of uh, misconstrued as it went through, went through the grapevine. And this is also one of the reasons why we see quite so many fatwas emerging all across the archipelago. You know, I've been able to document a, a number of them, but I heard about others through my oral histories that we no longer have the text of. One of the problems coming out of the revolution was that you had these conflicting chains of authority, right? Once Indonesia was united and independent in the 1950s, a lot of the politicians that I write about in part two of the book, who thought of themselves as very authoritative because they had held positions in government, they were not on the same page as the local, often traditionalist Islamic teachers engaging with Muslims in the villages. And that led to some of the political conflicts of the 1950s and some of the difficulties for Islamic politics moving forward. So we can see that religious authority really was fractured coming out of the revolution, partly just because of the conditions on the ground. Now, one of the features that I should highlight here um, that did continue from the revolution moving forward were the mass Islamic organizations. The two most famous of these are, of course, Nahdlatul Ulama, or NU, and Muhammadiyah, which already had networks across the archipelago. And so those organizations could issue fatwas, or they could get together a group of local ulama who would join together issuing a fatwa. And those also carried the authority, not just of the individuals, but also of the organization. And I think that the fracturing that you're referring to also comes up in the 1940s when we think about social revolution and the way in which the revolution to resist the Dutch was also accompanied by various smaller scale movements that sought to overthrow the existing social order, either through communism or through Islam. And this includes uh, most notably the Darul Islam movement led by Carto Suvirio, which ultimately failed. And because these are sort of sporadic, uh, smaller scale movements that bloomed and then fractured and then disappeared, to what extent should we take the sort of social revolutionary aspect um, inspired by Islam? Um, seriously, since they don't really seem to achieve either the objectives or they are lasting uh, or have any lasting impact. Yeah, that's a, a really sticky question. What I've tried to do in this book is to first think about them as they existed in the 1940s, right? Not not look back on them anachronistically, but evaluate them in the 1940s. The Indonesian language historiography on this really paints them as being exceptional. Certainly, it paints the Darul Islam movement of West Java as being exceptional. 
and says, oh, this wasn't, you know, communicating with other groups. This wasn't, you know, the same theology as other parts of the archipelago. They were doing something really different. They had a different idea of what the Indonesian state would be. And I think that I've uh, shown that the Darul Islam movement of West Java under Kartus Wirjo was actually just part of a spectrum, right? It was at the extreme end of that spectrum. It had some unique characteristics. But actually, some of the elements, like ideas about the role of Islam in the state, like engaging in social revolution of violence against other Indonesians, these were elements that we saw in other parts of the archipelago to greater and lesser extents. So we should reckon with them as being a broad spectrum instead of a, a sort of broken off, divergent path for the revolution. When we think about the social revolution, right, the violence of Indonesian on Indonesian, there were all kinds. And we should you know, recognize that not only did a lot of the Islamic efforts fail to take over the governments, both at the lowest levels and at provincial levels at this time, but other efforts, right? Uh, the communist efforts, both at the smallest level and the Madiun, you know, abortive coup attempt in 1948. Um, there were traditionalist efforts, right? You know, folks who wanted to sort of go back to uh, ethnic or traditional understanding of how power would work in these regions. And those also failed. So the Islamic efforts at social revolution uh, were similar to many other um, proposed directions for Indonesian society at this time that also weren't that fruitful. Let me just uh, pick up on what you said about in violence and the way in which it becomes part of that these movements as well. So it is, I mean, violence is part of the story of most revolutions. It's part of the story of the movements that um, are related to Islam and also not related to Islam, as you pointed out. And in your book, it's sort of tackled implicitly rather than explicitly. And I'm wondering, how do your interlocutors, especially those who you interviewed in your oral histories, how do they reckon with the violent aspects of revolutionary struggles and how do they reconcile that with the objectives that they, they were trying to achieve? So this is one of the areas in which I have to recognize my positionality as an interviewer. You know, me coming to them as a very clearly white foreign man, um, they might not want to brag about how many white men they killed. But a lot of my interlocutors were very honest about engaging in violence during the revolution. Uh, probably my favorite interviewee was a woman named Lila Rosma in uh, West Sumatra around the city of Payakumbu. Um, and even though she was a woman, she was in a militia and she was very straightforward with me about, you know, the years when she finally reached her area and how she engaged in that militia in attacking these men. Um, she wouldn't generally stab them, but she would, you know, be walking by them. She would throw in the eyes of the Dutch men a combination of sand and chili powder to blind them so that then a man could come out of the bushes and do the final kill. And they were sort of uh, very upfront about the fact that what they were do, what they were trying to achieve, the goal of this revolution, the Telos, of Indonesian independence and of the freedom of religion that they aspired to under that independence, were worth the violence that they would be committing. One of the difficult things, though, is that most of my interlocutors were less willing to talk about the social violence of Indonesian on Indonesian. In some ways, that violence was limited to specific areas. So when I interviewed folks in Aceh, for example, they were willing to talk about the Chumbuk War, the, the violence that happened against the traditional elite in early 1946. But in a lot of areas, the social violence of the revolution has been elided or erased or avoided in subsequent conversations. Um, so a lot of my data in those areas did have to come from the documentary record that we have. Right. And I think um, at this point, we'd like to pause for a short break. So we've discussed the military front. In the next part of the interview, we'll move on to the political front of the revolution. But for now, um, let's take a short break and listen to a couple of messages. 
New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Today I'm with um, Kevin Paul discussing Indonesia's Islamic Revolution. And in the first half of this interview, we have talked about the role of pious Muslim fighters in the military front. And the second half of the interview is also about the second half of the book, which concerns the political fronts of the revolution. And Kevin, here you analyse first how God came to take his place in the Indonesian constitution, the Pancasila. And in your view, the final version of the Pancasila scrub, and I quote here, the Indonesian constitution of any and all references to Islam and Muslimness, making it one of the few Muslim-majority nations with no Islamic reference in their constitution. This is by no means a geological outcome. Can you give us some sense of how God came to take this particular place in this particular document? This is a story that is well-known in Indonesia, but not very well-known outside and is kind of all of the things that you want from a political drama, right? You've got late night meetings, you've got you know people hashing it out around a table, you've got a surprise ending. Um, but in the summer of 1945, the Japanese were still occupying Indonesia, and they set up a committee to discuss Indonesian independence, which they had promised but were really, really slow to, to move towards in the final stages of World War II. That committee was debating a, a Indonesian constitution, but it was made up of people just who were under the... Japanese occupation of the island of Java. So it had some folks who were ethnically from the outer islands, but it was not bringing in people from the outer islands. It was handpicked by the Japanese to debate these things. And in that committee, Sukarno put forward his famous new philosophy for Indonesia, Pancasila, which means five principles. And one of those principles was going to be Ketuhanan, which means sort of divinity. It was going to be the last one, and the Muslims really weren't that happy about it. Now, Muslims were really underrepresented in that body, in that handpicked Japanese debating hall. But the Muslims were really not going to stand for divinity being only the fifth thing and being so loose and you know being such a marginal part of this country. So they uh, forced a small special committee um, of nine people, it was called the Committee of Nine, to debate this. And the Committee of Nine came up with a compromise. They said, okay, we're going to make it not just divinity, we're going to make it divinity with an obligation for Muslims to follow the Islamic law, or for those who believe in it to follow the Islamic laws, the technical words that they used. And then they sort of negotiated to require the president be a Muslim. And they had made all of these concessions over the summer of 1945. Well, I should say between June and August of 1945. In Indonesia, it's always summer. The Japanese were forced to surrender in World War II. Indonesia hurtled towards independence very fast. And the night after Indonesia proclaimed its independence, but before it promulgated its constitution, there was a midnight meeting with Sukarno and Hatta, who were the president and vice president of this republic, And they were convinced to pull out the references to Islamic law because it was seen as being too beneficial to the Muslims and putting too strong of a place for Islam in the Indonesian constitution. The next morning, they took meetings and created a new formulation. It would be the first of the five principles in Pancasila, which was going to kick off the Indonesian constitution. But it would be Katuhananya Maha Esa, which means sort of one unitary divinity, right? One great God. Um, And that sort of thread the needle to make Muslims happy that the unity of the divine was emphasized. Um, echoing what they believe in Tawheed, right? The unity of God, but without that obligation for Islamic law. Now, that was something that has been debated repeatedly in Indonesia, not just in 1945 when it happened, but in 
But again, in the 1950s, when they were looking at writing a permanent constitution, the Constituanta, again in the 1990s, when they were uh, doing revisions to the constitution and after the fall of Suharto. The last thing that I should emphasize about this, and I think that this is too often forgotten among historians of Indonesia and among Indonesians themselves, is that the constitution in the revolution of Indonesia was really a much more living document than it is today. You know, the 1945 constitution outlines a presidential system, a strong presidential system, but that was abandoned within two months of Indonesian independence. In October of 1945, all of the political elites agreed, okay, we're just going to set up a prime ministerial system because it's the one that we understand better. It's what the Dutch have, plus that will allow us to put forward a prime minister who is not uh, a collaborator with the Japanese and so isn't tainted with that World War II fascism collaboration. So in the 1940s, the constitution had some meaning, but it was not enacted exactly as it was written. It's only after 1959 that that document and the lack of godliness in that document, right, the lack of a real concrete place for Islam became cemented in Indonesian governance. And that's where it remains until today. I think what you refer to as the lack of a real concrete place for Islam in the constitution would at first glance seem a very promising way of um, also including um, other communities who are, are non-believers in Islam um, in, in the Indonesian state. But And I refer here to a recent book on Indonesian politics, Islam and Democracy by um, Jeremy Lenchik, which posits that the inclusion of just God himself, I mean, just even a kind of a non, uh, not towards pointing and, and towards any sort of religion, um, kind of God in, a, in, in the Indonesian constitution actually sort of paved the way for godly nationalism that grew increasingly intolerant towards non-belief. I mean, when you look at, back at this historically, to what extent would you agree with this argument? Let me say first that I love Jeremy Menchik's work. I think it's a great book, Islam and Democracy. And Jeremy really brings the best abstract thinking of political theory um, to meet real, on-the-ground, in-the-weeds knowledge of Indonesia. And so it's a fantastic book for anyone to read if they're interested in the current political moment in Indonesia, not just the past. But when I think about the inclusion of divinity or ketuhanan in the Indonesian constitution and, and in the five principles, the, the philosophy that underlies the Indonesian state, I don't think this is just paving the way, sort of looking forward to godly nationalism. I also think it's a reflection. It's looking back at the nationalism that led to that moment of independence. Remember that the most large sort of massive nationalist organization in Indonesia was Sarakat Islam, an Islamic union that was very unambiguously religious. It grew into a political party. It spawned the Communist Party in Indonesia, in fact. Um, Sarakat Islam is the sort of origin of Indonesian modern politicking. It does suggest that we had some godly nationalism leading into the 1940s, not just coming out of it. I also want to think about the way that Ketuhanan or divinity, right, godliness, being written into Pancasila colors the way that religious nationalism in Indonesia functions. The idea of having a god is complex, difficult, problematic for some of the indigenous religions of Indonesia. Um, it's certainly problematic for Confucian and for Buddhist Indonesians. Um, and so this frames godly nationalism in a particular way. It makes a lot of sense for Muslims. It makes some sense for Christians. But it creates problems not only for atheists, but also for those religious beliefs that are not centered on a singular divinity. That's something that's worth bearing in mind as we think about the unintended consequences of the constitution that got thrown together over the summer of 1945. I just want to pick up on your reference to the um, Tussarikat Islam, which is one important political group. 
that eventually faded and I think spawned many different groups that are often overlooked in the accounts of the Islam revolution. And one in particular is the Islamic socialists. What do you think is the political legacy of a kind of a leftist uh, brand of Islam in the revolution and beyond? Well, I love that you've linked the Islamic socialists of the 1940s and 50s back to their roots in Sarkat Islam. You know, many of the Islamic socialists that we think about out of the 1940s and 50s in Indonesia, men like Muhammad Natsir, Muhammad Rum, Burhanuddin Harahap, uh, Shafrin Pirinagara, these men were too young to have really participated in the politics of Sarkat Islam in the 19-teens and 20s when it was big. Uh, many of them were born around 1908, um, 1912. But they were strongly influenced by Sarkar Islam and the legacy of Chokraminoto, who was the great leader of Sarkar Islam in the early days, um, who had written about Islam and socialism. He had actually plagiarized a book by an Indian man about Islam and socialism. And so had laid that idea that Islam had social teachings, that it wanted a safety net, that it wanted to give sort of economic support for all people in society, to create a harmony and, and to bring God's vision for how human beings should relate to one another in a, in a social community, right? The Islamic socialists of the 1940s are interesting both because they had that combination of Islam, which was very popular at the grassroots, and socialism, which was very current at that moment. Remember, Indonesia had just thrown off a fascist occupier in Japan, and socialism was really appealing as having opposed both fascism and opposing uh, the reemergence of colonialism, which was trying to fight its way back in with the Dutch in this revolution. Islamic socialism capitalized on those two hot trends, but it rose to power in Indonesia in an unusual way. And I was sort of surprised as I was writing this book, I don't know that anyone else has recognized this, right? That actually Mashumi, the leading Islamic party, the, the only Islamic party at the start of the revolution, was not led initially by Islamic socialists. It was led by a sort of old guard. It was led by people who had been active in the 1920s and 30s, especially the 1930s. The Islamic socialists rose through a back door because it was the socialist party led by Sultan Shahrir, that was running the first three, maybe four administrations in Indonesia under the prime ministerial system. And that socialist party wanted to get Muslims into the cabinet, but Muslims who they could work with, who had similar ideological positions to those socialist leaders. So they found these sort of young guns, right? These emerging leaders in the Islamic movement, like Muhammad Natsir, like Burhanuddin Harahap, who were very sympathetic to socialism. And that's how those folks came to rise first in government and only after that in Mashumi as a party, and then became major political leaders who are still talked about and venerated in Indonesia today. But one of the fascinating things too about their legacy, you know, as much as people like Muhammad Natsir are venerated across the political spectrum in Indonesia, right? Not just by very conservative Muslims, but also by very middle of the road Muslims. His ideas about Islamic socialism have been largely forgotten. Since 1965, socialism is almost a bad word in Indonesia. And so the social teachings about a strong safety net, about nationalization of certain industries, about um, the protection and promotion of opinions, those have been largely lost. And when you read the Mashumi documents of the revolution, like Yusuf Wibisono writes in the Mashumi party platform, basically a, a Marxian teleological history of class conflict moving from age to age. Um, he just tempers it with a very strong critique of Marx as being atheist and not recognizing the hand of God over this whole process. I cannot imagine any of the Islamic parties today writing that same kind of class-based critique of the economic structures of Indonesia. It's just something, so that side of their legacy has really been lost. That's true. And I think what's interesting is that you've also highlighted, I think, the uh, interplay between uh, Mashumi and Asuta Shari's most um, overtly socialist group. And why do you think, in a way, that Islamic socialists needed a backdoor? Why couldn't they do well electorally? 
I'm assuming ended up winning the 1955, sort of winning the 1955 elections or becoming a more um, a stronger political group. Uh, and the Islamic socialists, as in at least Sutashari's kind of uh, party of Islamic socialists, didn't do quite so well. Yeah, Sultan Shahrir's Islamic Socialist Party was really good at big ideas. They were very popular among the elites, but not among the masses. Mashumi was trying very hard to walk that tightrope, right? They wanted to have men who were prepared to engage in a quote-unquote modern government that could be recognized by the international community that would you know, get support from the United Nations for their independence, but also who had a strong commitment to Islam. Now, in August of 1945, or more accurately, maybe in November of 1945, when Mashumi was formed as a party, it was not yet so clear that they were going to be dependent on the international community, that they would have to negotiate, that they would be sort of uh, working in Western languages and with international actors to gain their independence. But Sira became president of the party in 1948-49. It was very clear that Indonesia was going to have to be negotiating to get its final transfer of sovereignty. And so I think that also helped this young group, which had been uh, through Dutch schools, all of whom were able to speak Dutch or sometimes also other languages like English, to rise. There's an interesting sort of middle ground between them and the old ulama, right? The old ulama, we think of people like the leaders of NU at the time, right? Wahab Hasbollah or Hashem Ashari, even Wahid Hashim, his son, who became a very famous leader of NU, the father of Gustur, Indonesia's fourth president. You know, those folks really didn't have the Western education, would not have been able to sit at that table. But there's an intermediary um, between those two who are the folks who came to power in Mashumi in 1945. So people like Adam, um, who was a Dutch-educated medical doctor. He was actually a specialist in lung disease, um, who was the first president of Mashumi and who remained very prominent in the party, either as the um, president or the chairman in the 1950s, also a prime minister in the 1950s. But he didn't have the um, sort of socialist youth energy and, and sort of he wasn't connected to the Weltanschauung, the sort of spirit of the age in the revolution in a way that would capture the imagination of politics. Um, but he wasn't quite as close to the actors in the secular national side, especially the socialists. That's what gave people like Nazir uh, Dorian. Now, some of those folks had just not been active in national politics. I think Mohammed Rum was the most active among them. But Mohammed Nazir wasn't even a member of parliament when parliament was first seated in August 1945. He was accidentally registered as a member in September, and because his name was on the list, he just kept coming and became an official member of parliament. So it was sort of unthinkable that they would have been the president or the leader of the party at the beginning. Um, it was necessary for them to work with governmental leaders to then rise in the party structures. And I think that that, that answer sort of highlights an interesting um, aspect of transiting from, I think, revolution to governance. And this is also a, a theme that I think you build on in your book when you talk about the process of bureaucratization. And um, you describe, I think, the creation of a ministry of religion as, quote unquote, an important victory, which is, I think, not how most people would describe the setting up of some kind of uh, bureaucratic body to govern Islam. So can you tell us more about why you think this is such a seminal moment in Indonesia's political revolution? Yes, I think that the creation of a ministry of religion is both a victory for the pious Muslim community as a whole, and a victory for a very specific class of leaders among the pious Muslim community. So let me play out both of those. For the pious Muslim community as a whole, I think it was a recognition by the Indonesian government that Islam was a key pole of life, was a key pillar of society, and that they should be contributing to it, they should you know, put some funding towards it, they would have to integrate it in different parts of society. So the creation of a ministry of religion paved the way for 
Islam to then be taught in state schools. It paved the way for the state to uh, integrate Islam in some regulations, like the regulations on marriage, which were passed in 1947, um, that said all Muslims in Indonesia, initially on Java and Madura, but eventually throughout Indonesia, had to get married in Islamic ways. So this sort of gave a foothold for Islamic ideas of how the government should run to get into um, the doors of the government, to get into those offices. But it was also especially a victory for a specific class of leaders among the pious Muslim community. These are folks who you know, might not have had any Western education at all. They might have gone entirely through Islamic schools, gotten a very high level of education, right? They were often literate in not just two languages, three languages maybe, Javanese, Indonesian, Arabic, or Buganese, Indonesian, and Arabic. They were also often literate in two or three scripts, right? They might still read the Javanese script. They often read the Arabic script. Um, some of them were not actually literate in the Romanized form of Indonesian and the Latin alphabet that you and I would use to write Indonesian today. But those highly educated people had no other way that they would be able to get a government job. And government jobs moving forward from the 1940s, um, certainly from the 1950s through the 1970s, were really plumb positions, right? They had a steady salary. Um, most uh, Islamic leaders sort of depended on contributions from the community. They depended maybe on the number of students that were going to come study under them or the profits that they could get off of the land that was owned by their school. A government salary meant that they could get a regular payment every month. They had a pension. They sort of, you know, had a, an iron rice bowl, to use the Chinese expression, um, that secured their lifestyle. It also gave those specific leaders, right, the ones who were brought into the government, a platform from which to promote their ideas of orthodoxy. So whereas there had been a really wide range of understandings of what was Orthodox Islam in Indonesia before the revolution, the creation of a centralized ministry meant that there was someone in the Indonesian government, a minister of religion, who could be telling other people sort of the parameters in which Islamic practice should be happening. Now, they couldn't tell everyone down to the details. Indonesia has always recognized that there is some plurality of understanding of Islam, certainly between the folks who call themselves reformists, Muhammadiyah, and the folks who call themselves traditionalists, like the Nahdudul Ulama, Inu. But they could say um, that groups beyond those two, they could say that certain uh, radical understandings, both radical in that they are not terribly connected to the scriptural bases of Islam in the Quran and the Hadith, or radical in that they were um, taking interpretations that might be contrary to the Indonesian state, that those understandings were not properly Islamic. This gave a new platform for a specific class of Muslim leader to have fresh authority to enforce an orthodoxy. And in that way, it was a tremendous victory for those leaders because they had been like all religious leaders, looking for a way to promote their ideas of what Islam is and how it should be practiced. So that's why I think that the Ministry of Religion was a victory for those communities especially. Right. And, uh, and it does show, I think, the uh, way in which Islam is incorporated kind of in the nationalist framework. And I was just thinking that in some ways, the role of Islam within the nation state also grapples with kind of a concern that many modern nation states have with sort of giving polit that giving political space to Islamist groups or Islamist thought would also give space to pan-Islamism that would trans ultimately transcend the nation state and then uh, undermine nation building. How did did this uh, transnational aspect of Islam or these kind of concerns um, come up at all during the Indonesian Revolution? And did it impact the sort of nascent nation of Indonesia during this period? Well, I don't think there were a lot of Indonesian Muslims who were trying to become pan-Islamists, right? There was not a lot of discussion on the ground. We don't see pamphlets, tracts, newspaper articles about folks who wanted to create one uh, large uh, governance unit, certainly not a, a caliphate or anything. 
um, that was going to try and collapse all Muslims into one state. That just was not present among Indonesian Muslim debates in the 1940s. But we did see one particular important role for Islamic Brotherhood internationally in the Indonesian Revolution. So Indonesia benefited quite a lot from Islamic solidarity of other majority Muslim countries who were the first to recognize Indonesian independence. Um, based on the activism of some Muslim students who were in Cairo, the Arab League, which had just been set up in 1945, took a keen interest in the Indonesian independence movement. In fact, they called for Indonesian independence before they called for the independence of Tunisia or Morocco. That, in turn, led Egypt to recognize Indonesian independence in 1947. It was the first country to recognize Indonesia's independence. And the fact that a country had recognized Indonesian independence gave a premise on which India and Australia could submit the case to the new United Nations organization, thus have it debated. And that was the forum in which Indonesia and the Dutch hashed out the nature of independence and built towards the transfer of sovereignty to the United States of Indonesia in 1949, which quickly consolidated into the unitary state of the Republic of Indonesia in 1950. So all of that diplomatic process actually was kicked off by Islamic solidarity, international Muslim networks. Those were certainly present. They were certainly important. But at the same time, we really should not overplay the homogeneity of Muslims around the world or underplay the nationalism of Indonesian Muslims. Um, the Muslims that I was talking to and that I'm writing about in my book were not fighting for independence from the Dutch because they wanted some pan-Islamic state. They were really committed um, to a democratic state. Um, they were committed actually to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which was just coming out at that time because they believed that it strongly supported their side against the colonists. But most especially, they were committed to the idea of an Indonesian nation, not a worldwide governance project, but an Indonesian nation that would be of their people, that would be of their land. They talked about Tanahair as being, they talked about their homeland as being this archipelago in which they found themselves, not some project that stretched across the Indonesian ocean. And I think that the before we sort of end up the interview, I just want to sort of get some thoughts from you about uh, relating this book uh, back to the present. And it seems that today um, Indonesia might be sort of swinging away from the more centralized governance, of course, in the new order era and uh, back to the kind of uh, political fragmentation that characterized, I think, the 1940s and back to having more vocal calls for Islam to play a bigger role in the Indonesian state in a, in a debated, contested um I'm off his way. Um, what lessons do you think the revolution holds for Indonesia's contemporary politics? It's a great question. And it's a really important question for Indonesians to debate. Um, because I'm neither Muslim nor Indonesian, I don't want to give any normative answer, right? I, I'm, I can't say what they should do. That's really got to be up to them. But I can draw some lessons from history. And I'll, I'll put forward the most important one, to my mind at least. As Islam tried to gain a bigger foothold in Indonesian government in the 1940s, that also changed the face of how Islam was practiced, taught, and understood in Indonesia. So when we think today or in the future about shifting the relationship between Islam and state in the nation, I think scholars and activists, the folks calling for this on the ground, should be cognizant of the ways that that shifting relationship can change the face of Islam, not just the face of politics. Maybe just to end off, we always end off with like two questions. Um, and the first is, what is, would you like to recommend an underread or underrated book um, in your field to the listeners at New Books Network who might want to follow up on this topic? Well, there's a, a million great books. There's been a, a real um, burgeoning historiography of Islam in Indonesia um, since about a decade ago. But actually, the book that I've been reading most recently that I've been loving is a new book by Tamo Jo called Migration in the Time of Revolution, China, Indonesia, and the Cold War. It's great, and it's asking some of the questions that we should have been researching for a long time. 
about the position of Chinese in Indonesia and how they played into politics and some of the ambiguities of their um, position between these two emerging Asian powers in the 1950s. I, I think it's really well researched. I think there's a lot of big, juicy ideas in there, and I encourage it to folks who are interested in Indonesian history in this period. Right, and Tom is one of my colleagues, and definitely I share your view that this is a very important book to read. Me just to uh, before we end off, um, tell us a bit more about what is your next um, research project. Well, I'm really excited. I've been looking at mass Islamic organizations in Indonesia across time. You know, this first book was really focused on those four to five years between 1945 and 1950. Um, but this next book is thinking from the 1930s until today about how mass Islamic organizations in Indonesia have evolved, how they differ from one another, but especially how they have made Indonesian religious life different from other majority Muslim countries around the world. You don't see this Indonesian style of mass Islamic organization in Malaysia or in Pakistan or in Iran or Egypt or elsewhere. I think there's something special, something unique about the way that they relate to the state, about the way that they relate to society. So many people will be familiar with the two biggest organizations, um, and we've talked about them some today, NU and Muhammadiyah. But I try to draw out the structural history of mass Islamic organizations in Indonesia by looking at three regional organizations. Jamiat al-Washliya, founded in North Sumatra, Nahdlatul al-Watan, which was founded on Lombok, based on Lombok, and Al-Khairat, which is headquartered in central Sulawesi. And this kind of comparison allows us to think about what is common among these organizations, what is unique to them, but especially how they have interacted with other forces in Indonesian society over the last century. I'm really excited about it. I hope it'll be out in the next year. Yeah, I'm excited to read it too when it comes out. Uh, thanks, Kevin. It, is, it has been such a pleasure to discuss your book with you and um, listen to your thoughts about the contemporary salience of this book and to think through revolutions during this tumultuous time with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Faiza. It's great to have a conversation with such a thoughtful and incisive historian. Thanks. And a big thank you, too, to all listeners. You've been listening to the New Books in Southeast Indian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, where we have been discussing Indonesia's Islamic Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Please stay well, stay safe, and join in with us the next time. Uh-huh.